welcome to the Cosmoses Podcast, hosted by Justin Moses. Hey, welcome to the show. I am Justin Moses, and this is episode number 26 of the Cosmosis Podcast, with very special guest, Barry Bells. I'll be telling you a whole lot more about him coming up. But first, this show is brought to you by Low Vintage Instrument Company, located in downtown Burlington, North Carolina. Low Vintage was named one of the top 100 music stores in the world in 2016. And it's owned by father and son, Ed and Will Lowe. Like I say, located right down there in downtown Burlington, North Carolina. They have a a fine selection of vintage guitars, banjos, mandolins, and basses from C.F. Martin, Gibson, Fender, and uh, many others. And they have some fine used instruments as well from makers like Collings, Santa Cruz, Wayne Henderson, Jimmy Edmonds, and many more. And a full line of uh, new and used accessories, including brands like Hercules Stands, Calton Cases, Cedar Creek Custom Cases, Blue Chip Picks, uh, Peterson Tuners, GHS Strings, Diodario, Ernie Ball, Elixir, and many more. Like them on Facebook and follow them on Instagram and Twitter, or call them at 336 524 6250 and uh, you find your timeless tone at lowvintage.com that is l-o-w-e vintage.com like i say i really appreciate their sponsorship of this show and bringing to you uh, each and every episode for absolutely free of charge and i ask you to thank the sponsors as well you know when i started out this show I did it completely on my own. I, I just decided it was something I would do. And, and the guest this week, Barry Bells, was a influence even on doing that. Um, I had thought about having a podcast even before I saw that he had one, but he had one well before I did. And uh, so he's kind of a pioneer in this whole thing in a certain regard in the bluegrass community, in the world in which we exist but uh, I started out and uh, did it just basically for fun, and I still am uh, to a certain degree, but I also want it to be successful, and for that to happen, Low Vintage is a big uh, partner in, in that being the case, um, because they're they're paying the way uh, so that I don't have to, and really, for this to work, it has to be a, a partnership all the way around, you the listener. If you enjoy this show, have to let Low Vintage know that you appreciate their sponsorship of this show, and in turn, maybe they'll continue to sponsor the show. And uh, to that end, I, I rarely ask for for too much on the show. I've, I've mentioned uh, iTunes and, and things like that, but I have uh, a couple favors to ask at this time. <laughs> if you're listening to the show and you really enjoy it, I ask that you share it on your Facebook and your Twitter, your social media, whatever you use, Instagram, make a YouTube video, do what you got to do, but share it so that uh, your friends who may not listen to the show but might, might enjoy it can see that it exists 
and uh, and possibly discover it. So that's one thing. Just share on your social media, and then uh, uh, this is that same thing I just mentioned. Uh, subscribing on iTunes. You know, I know from my the data that I get that a lot of you are listening on a lot of different platforms, and I appreciate that. I encourage you to to continue. You know, I appreciate you listening on. Um, SoundCloud, listening on Beyond Pod, and uh, any app or any way that you're listening to the show, I appreciate that. But if you could uh, also subscribe on iTunes, or you know, you don't re- really even have to subscribe on iTunes to download the episodes from there. You can go to iTunes and and download the episodes individually if you'd prefer not to have all of them download to your device, but that's an option that you have. It can be automatically downloaded. And uh, and giving the show a rating and review, it's a big deal because iTunes is the biggest platform. Uh, it's where more people discover this kind of thing than, than anywhere else. So that's why I hammer home the thing with iTunes, that if you would do that for me, that would be a big deal. And the other thing besides that is... Uh, I, I try not to plug my music too much on the show and uh, because I want this to be about a lot more than just that. But those of you that do have my new EP, I ask you to do the same thing. Uh, go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. And, and in both cases, for the podcast and my music, I'm not really asking for five-star reviews if you don't... Uh, if, if you don't think they warrant it. But uh, I do ask for... Whatever your true thoughts are, please give them, and uh, your feedback will be uh, appreciated, positive or negative. And and if there's negative, then hopefully I can learn from from what you don't like and improve both the podcast and my music. So those are some things that I'm asking of you. And hey, I still want you to write me at uh, Justin at JustinMoses.com and let me know your thoughts on the show. Another thing that'd be really cool is if you would just send me a little email and let me know in what the circumstances are in which you listen to the show. Like, uh, are you a truck driver? Are you driving down the road right now and kind of listening to the show as you drive along? Uh, are you working out at the gym and like to listen to podcasts while you work out? Those sorts of things. I, I like to know those things. Um, it's just a cool thing to, uh, to know where the show is being listened to. So if you would do that for me, I'd appreciate it a bunch, and uh, we'll get on with the show. So I've been off the last couple of weeks off the road, and it's been great. I've been getting up every morning, going for a walk first thing, and uh, getting some physical activity in, and uh, working on the podcast. Um, After this show, this is episode 26, episode 27 will have uh, Greg Cahill, and uh, episode 28 will have Junior Williams from Newtown, and of course Greg's from the band Special Consensus, or Special C as it is known, and uh, so I've been working on the podcast and that sort of stuff, and uh, ended up filling in at the Opry this past Saturday night with the Graskles, and that was a good time, but other than that, just, uh, just enjoying some time off and made a family visit and that sort of thing, but uh, I do want to tell you about some of the shows coming up. If you're listening to this, the week it comes out, this Thursday, August the 4th, we'll be at the uh, Levitt Amp Sheboygan in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. 
And on August 5th, we'll be at Evanston Space in Evanston, Illinois. August 6th, we'll be at Legion Arts in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And August 7th, we'll be at the Dakota Jazz Club in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, all this stuff is with the Sierra Hall. The Weighted Mind Tour. And uh, it continues, folks. Continues on and on. Um, August 12th, we'll be at the Podunk Bluegrass Festival in Hebron, Connecticut. August 13th, Music Fest, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And August 14th, the Capitol L House Music Hall. That's in Richmond, Virginia. And you can, of course, find all those dates and uh, many more at sierrahall.com. And I have them on my website as well, justinmoses.com. I'm always trying to keep that up to date. I have a few more things that I need to add to mine. She keeps hers pretty well up to date. And that's about all I'm going to hit on for uh, for that sort of stuff. We have a pretty lengthy interview with Barry today. But I did want to tell you a little story about, about that. Um, of course, I played in a band with Barry for a couple years and uh, been knowing him for a few years now. Um, and I had thought about doing the podcast a while back. Uh, so... I had asked him about possibly doing an interview for the podcast, not this past IBMA, but a year before that. And uh, I didn't even really get the podcast started till last August. So this was a year before I ever really had the podcast started. And uh, from that time on, I've been trying to, to work him in somehow, and it's just not worked out until the other day. And uh, the Earls of Leicester were in town uh, doing a a video shoot and playing at the Country Music Hall of Fame. And Barry came over to the house and did an interview um, before the Country Music Hall of Fame gig. And, you know, we had a good good talk here and everything. And once he left, I started thinking about some of the things that I didn't ask. Because a lot of times I try to be really prepared for these interviews and write out a bunch of questions and stuff. I didn't necessarily do this with Barry because I knew I had a lot uh, a lot of things just on my mind from time to time that I could ask. And I figured we'd be able to talk through the interview without really me needing to write anything down. But I did realize I'd forgotten something, just a, a technical question about recording one of the, a, a specific recording. I had uh, been listening, going down the road one day to... Uh, uh, it's not been that long ago, really, but uh, this has been a question I've had for years. Um, on the uh, so long, so long record, so long, so wrong record of uh, Allison Krauss and Union Station, the song "The Road Is a Lover." If you listen to that, you know that that recording on the quality of the recording of that album is just awesome. It sounds great, and. Uh, but on that one song, I notice in the one spot, it's on the banjo solo on the song The Road is a Lover. The bass tone just completely changed. And uh, I had suspected what his answer... Well, the answer he gave me was the one that I figured was the case. But I ended up emailing him afterward. Hey, I've been... I forgot to ask you this, but... So I just asked him like what happened there in that spot, and uh, and he he said it was just the uh, upright electric upright, and that they had just experimented, and so that that was 
my suspicion was right, but at the same time, I still, maybe if I have him on for another interview at some point, we'll dive into sort of uh, more creative decisions, like why are they made or, or whatever. I guess that was more my curiosity rather than uh, than the tech, than even, because uh, I, I, I could tell it sounded like the uh, electric upright. But anyways, that's just uh, one little thing that I, that I forgot, but then I, I thought enough of it to uh, to email him and ask him afterward. But I'm not going to give a whole lot of uh, bio and background on Barry because we go into that in the interview, but uh, Barry's played the last 26 years with Allison Krauss and Union Station. He's been a part of numerous Grammys, and uh, he's a multi-time IBMA Bass Player of the Year and a great songwriter and... An overall great guy, one of the best bass players uh, on the planet, and, and one of the best guys. So here he is. Here's the interview with Barry Bells. I'll start off by saying thanks for coming by, Barry. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, tell the fine folks what all uh, has been going on in the world of Barry Bells. Well, a whole lot of this and that. Uh, yeah. A lot of music. A lot of farming, a lot of uh, trying to stay cool yeah. in this uh, heat dome that we're under. Right. Um, been playing with the Earls of Leicester a lot this summer. We've got a new record out as of last Friday. I don't know when this will air, but uh, around the 16th or 17th, I think it was. Yeah, but, we're, uh, we're, we're recording it on the uh, 21st, and it'll come out probably... A week from Tuesday, so. Okay. Yeah. So that's out, yeah. Um, been playing some festivals, playing some shows, playing the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame tonight. Been doing some recording, some producing, some songwriting. Uh, things at Bales Farms are hopping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, trying to keep all the animals fed and watered. Uh-huh. So it's just, a, you know, like everybody else, it's a busy time. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk a lot more about uh, Bell's Farms and that sort of stuff later. So let's uh, let's maybe talk about the music side of things first. Okay. Uh, go ahead and uh, let's talk about the uh, the record that just came out. Then, what's the name of it? It's called Rattle and Roar, mm -hmm. and it's on Rounder Records. Although I've not found them to be that much rounder than any other record, but uh, <laughs> it is what it is. But uh, that's the second album that we've done, The Earls of Leicester, which is, for those that don't know, is myself, Jerry Douglas, Sean Camp, Jeff White, Charlie Cushman, and Johnny Warren. And we are uh, we're doing all Flatt & Scruggs music. So okay. we've gone back and really woodshedded and tried to, tried to represent them and sort of bring their music back to the forefront a little bit in some people's minds. And uh, it's, been, it's been a fun project. Yeah, and that was uh, the initial uh, idea for it was Jerry Douglas's, right? I mean, didn't he start the whole thing? That's true. Jerry had this idea. Um, he's been talking about it for years. He and I would sit on the bus with, with uh, Allison Krauss, and he always had an idea of making a record like this. Um, and I think that he sort of had the idea, and then what really pushed it forward was he, he did some playing on – uh, Charlie Cushman and Johnny Warren, they play a lot together. Johnny's the fiddle mm -hmm. player, and he's the son of Paul Warren, who played with Flatten Scruggs. And Charlie Cushman is a uh, 
Nashville area banjo player that's one of the, the main uh, students, if you will, of, of you know really down to the nitty gritty of, of Earl Scruggs, and, and they make a lot of records together. So they had Jerry Guest on one, and I, I think, uh, you know, Johnny plays just like his dad, Paul, and mm-hmm. Charlie knows all of Earl's stuff inside and out. So I think when they, he finally got in there and, and that sound hit him, that's, that sort of propelled Jerry to, to go further with this. And he had always talked about doing a record, and then the next thing I know, lo and behold, he's talking about putting a band together. And it's just sort of... Uh, more from that um I, it's really turned out great I, you know, I think i think yeah. particularly you know it's it's kind of a uh touchy thing to try to put together a band that's emulating flat and scrugs you know because oh, yeah. on one hand they can't really be emulated <laughs> and and we're just trying to pay tribute to them and 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 honor them and and maybe as i said for some of the folks, particularly younger folks that may or may not be intimately familiar with their music other than just the name or Foggy Mountain Breakdown or something like that, try to sort of bring it back to people's consciousness a little more and uh, make make everybody either realize or remember how, how great and how groundbreaking they were. Yeah, I'm sure, like you said, in the process of... Uh, of- going back and kind of studying their music you probably yourself even uh have a somewhat of a renewed uh respect or absolutely or love Ab- for their music absolutely i grew up as a as a first generation uh bluegrass listener and lover my dad was uh, everything that he had in the house was bill monroe flat and scruggs stanley brothers osborne brothers mac wiseman hmm. and uh you know, the Osborne Brothers stuff was probably the newest music that we had in the house. And yeah. that, that was all I knew forever. And then got out a little more when I was a teenager and started playing or started going to a local music store and taking lessons from uh, James Allen Shelton and got to know a lot of the guys around there who've become friends of mine, Tim Stafford, Adam Steffi, all those guys. But it was through that that I kind of got... Uh, I first became aware of of second generation stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bluegrass album was really happening at that time, and uh, right. but anyway, I say all that to say the way I grew up and the music I listened to, I was I felt like I was intimately familiar with Flat and Scruggs. Not just oh yeah, I know how to play, going to settle down or this <laughs> or that or whatever. But I mean, I felt like I knew it. Yeah. But then to go back. Um, particularly on the first Earl's record, we would whatever song we were going to cut, we would listen to the original in the control room mm-hmm. and then go cut it. Yeah, and and that's really intimidating. Yeah, because there's just you know they just had that thing that you can't really put your finger on what it was. It was just the right combination of the right people at the right time. Uh-huh. And uh, you know we did our best, but. There's still been a lot of a lot of study. You know, it's 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 the more you get into it, the more nuance that you see and hear to it. Absolutely. And they, you know, I'm sure that they, and I, I'm pretty sure I've heard some of them say in interviews or read in interviews in the past. You know, you can you can get into it way deep and and. 
try to figure out, okay, well, why'd he do that there? Why'd he do this? You know, uh, if you asked them today, I'd say a lot of, a lot of them, particularly the, the foggy mountain boys, you know, Paul and Curly and Josh, they were just trying to make a living. Yeah. You know, they were just playing music. They were glad they weren't working in a textile mill over in Carolina or, you know, hoeing tobacco in Sparta or some somewhere. Right. Right. But, uh, they just they just had that thing. I guess part of it is probably that they came along so early in the formation of bluegrass, and you know pretty much in, invented it along with Bill Monroe, particularly when Lester and Earl were in his band. But there wasn't so much else going on that they had plenty of room to do what they felt, rather than have anybody saying oh well this is bluegrass this isn't bluegrass and they just played it as they felt it sure yeah well let's talk about uh two things on my mind right now i'd like to talk about with the recording uh recording process for for both records i don't know if they're if you did them the same or did them differently and then then the uh selection of material because they have a they have a, a huge catalog of, of songs to pick from so yeah. uh, whichever order you want to take those well the recording process was it was it was very similar between the two records and and a little bit different at the same time the first one we cut at oceanway studios here uh, on music row which is an old church and we cut it in the big what used to be the sanctuary uh really high ceilings stained glass windows, wood floors, all that, and had probably every vintage microphone rented <laughs> within a 200-mile radius of Nashville. <laughs> yeah. um, so that part was different uh, quite a bit from this, this new record. We cut it at the butcher shop, which is Dave Ferguson's place. Uh, well, John Prine's place. Dave Ferguson, uh, engineer, runs it. Um, Tim O'Brien cuts a lot there. Dale McCurry has been cutting there mm -hmm. recently. Yeah. And it is in an old uh, meatpacking warehouse complex. And, uh, you know, it's it's still, some people would say it's vintage, but I don't think it's been made to look that way. It's just, that's the way it's always looked. <laughs> and, it, and, and it's very, uh, I mean, perfectly adequate, great hang, all that, but comparing the two it's very bare bones and we had a few vintage mics but nothing outlandish and not a whole lot of of things but that's where it was different where it was the same is we we did it all live lined up like we do on stage uh vocals were live harmonies were live uh solos were live occasionally there would be when when possible we tweaked a few things with an overdub here or two, but yeah. you know, when you've got a room full of op open mics, you know perfectly well that it's hard to go back and overdub after that because of bleed and Absolutely, whatnot. Yeah. But for the most part, yeah, they were uh, musically, they were both cut live. Um, selection of material. Um, this second one, I, I guess it was a, a sort of a next step from the material we picked on the first one the the main focus of the band is to do stuff from the era toward, sort of towards the end 
of Flat and Scruggs, definitely from the time that Paul Warren came on board, mm-hmm. late 50s, right. 58 or 9, uh, I think that's right, but don't quote me, up till the end. So, you know, we're, we've got a certain period of time to look for material. Not that we only do stuff, we do some stuff outside of that because, of course, as the band went on, they would still play things with Paul that they might have cut with Benny Martin or whatever. Yeah. So it was just trying to find a good cross-section of stuff that really represented them well and that we felt like we could pull off. And uh, I think for this second record, we've tried to get a little more obscure with uh, things like Faded Red Ribbon and uh, uh, Branded Wherever I Go. Um some of those, uh, I'm not sure that I'd ever even actually heard the Flat and Scruggs version of Branded before Jerry mentioned it. I'm not so, sure I'm familiar with it. So, yeah, some of the stuff is, is pretty pretty obscure. It's not like we went in and cut, you know, Blue Ridge Cabin Home and, and uh, rehash Down the road. everything everybody knows. <laughs> I mean, right. we, we, we have some that are more readily uh, familiar, but... For the most part, yeah, this time especially, we tried to go a little more deep catalog, as Mr. <laughs> Stubbs would say. Right. Well, back to the, the recording for a second. You uh, you said on the first session that you had, a, you know, basically every vintage microphone within the radius, but um, I, this is just totally me saying this, but uh, I, I could have swore I was around Jerry at some point and heard him say... Uh, that for at least some of it, like, did you, did you record on like a couple of mics or was it everybody had their own, their own mic? Well, everybody had their own. Yeah. Um, we still, we still got in formation like we would right. on stage. Yeah. Um, we, we sang, we all, when we were doing harmonies, we all sang into one mic. Gotcha. There were my, there were just mics everywhere, yeah. particularly for the first record. It yeah. wasn't so much that everybody had a dedicated mic. There was just yeah, you couldn't move six inches without <laughs> being in the you know the pattern of another microphone. Yeah. So we were trying to sort of a little bit recreate on stage, you know, and and so like for instance, if if Sean was singing, Jerry might be playing backup or or whatever but he might walk around and come over to the other side like he would on, sometimes on stage mm-hmm. over near where charlie is and with all those mics you can kind of hear that you know it's kind of a self panning right kind right. of thing more of a just just trying to get as as much of a live feel as possible rather than okay well the banjo is panned to 11 o'clock and the dobro stays over here at three or whatever yeah, yeah. just just a little more uh I don't know. I, I hesitate to use the word, but I'm not thinking of a better uh, description than just kind of an organic, <laughs> let it happen. If you right. want to walk over here, that's fine. You're still going to be heard yeah. kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, okay, so uh, compare and contrast that with how, say, um, you know, Acus records. Well, um, process-wise. Process-wise, we, you know, with with... With Acus, we're everybody's isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, we we do tend to, to, for the most part, cut live, um, not that live, not like Earls of Leicester live, right. but <laughs> but uh, the whole band playing together. A whole band playing yeah. together. Allison singing. You know, she's usually doing a scratch vocal, but 
she could always keep whatever her scratch <laughs> vocals are. But yeah. uh, you know, we're not piecing it together. There there are more overdubs and more room for overdubbing as far as solos or mm-hmm. backup or all that. But for the most part, we we do try to get you know the 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 biggest part of the track cut all together and uh you know hardly ever probably in my 26 years in the band i can't think i can't say for sure i would say that there's probably been no more than four or five tracks if that many that we cut to a click yeah you know so even though it's a little bit different some would say vastly different thing than the earls this the thought process is kind of the same in some ways you know we don't want to we want it to be as musical as we can right right. and and not uh you know not invent too much of it piece by piece but uh you know there's there's within reason there's a there's definitely a place for that sure let's uh let's go back into your your early years a little bit you know you mentioned that you know your first generation you'd you know, heard all that stuff growing up or whatever. Um, was your dad, because uh, he's the one you mentioned listening to that stuff, Did you? Did, were you also hearing a lot of uh, other music, like uh, just pop music, country music, that sort of thing? The only other thing, Dad, um, I, I was an only child, and, and uh, my parents were compared to most people, quite a bit older than me. Uh, my dad was, uh, oh, golly, I'd have to get up my calculator. And my dad, <laughs> I was born in 1969. My dad was born in 1926. So okay. yeah. uh, he, was a, he was a really good musician, played guitar and mandolin, and sort of had a uh, both ends of, of that part of the spectrum, uh, along with the Flatt and Scruggs and the, uh, Bill Monroe and all that, he had equally as much Bob Wills, Ray Price, Merle Haggard, George Jones, Hank Thompson. Mm-hmm. So I, for the most part, up until I was, I, you know, I, I was always around music. Dad would always get his guitar out after supper and sit around in the living room and play and sing, mostly just for his own enjoyment, you know, whether right. anybody was paying attention or not. Right. But probably... I started getting interested in, in trying to uh, learn uh, to play when I was about 10. And so it probably wasn't until I was 12 or 13 that I really started knowing about other music. Uh, up until then, it was pretty much all first-generation bluegrass and, and a lot of the uh, good, you know, honest country music like the, the artist that I mentioned. Yeah. So then um, I wanted to learn to play guitar based on seeing and hearing Dad. And uh, he had the foresight to, I wanted him to teach me to play. And he said, no, we need to get you lessons with somebody that knows what they're doing and has patience and all that. So I took guitar lessons for uh, about a year or so, starting when I was 10. And from the time I first started, I was like, oh, what have I gotten into? I hate this. <laughs> and mom and dad would have to make me practice and uh, all that. And then somewhere along the way, there, about a year's time, I guess, 
I don't know if it was that I finally started getting a little better or, or something just clicked, but all of a sudden I loved it and, and couldn't put it down. You know, they'd have to come and instead of making me practice, they'd make me stop to go to bed at night. Yeah. And through that, uh, we, we became aware of and started going down to uh, our local music store there in Kingsport, which was uh, called the Guitar Shop. And that was kind of the center of the local bluegrass world. Um, right. As I mentioned before, James Allen Shelton was teaching down there. Tim Stafford was teaching. Uh, guy that's a pretty well-known mandolin builder from East Tennessee, uh, Audie Ratliff, was teaching down there. And it's just where everybody went to hang out and jam on Saturdays. You know, Saturday morning, uh, all the local bluegrass pickers would be in there. About once a month one of the local uh, radio stations that played bluegrass would have a live remote from there. And uh, it was pretty, pretty thriving scene at the time. You know, this would have been early to early to mid eighties and uh, just fell in love with it and really got the bug that much more there and uh, got to be good friends with, with all those folks that I mentioned and, uh, Hooked up with pe- you know, people my own age, and, and then from there on started uh, going and seeing a lot of live shows and seeing, you know, we'd go to the down home and we'd go to, there was music everywhere. I mean, they used to have shows at, uh, oh, I can't think of the, the dealer's name, but it was a car dealership there in, uh, between Bristol and Abingdon. And, you know, I saw Larry Sparks there, saw <laughs> New Quicksilver there. Mm-hmm. We'd always go to uh, A.P. Carter Fold to see the Lost and Found anytime we could. And uh, just really got, you know, fully immersed and, and uh, went full on bluegrass geek, you know, Did, during that time period. Yeah, yeah. Well, um talk about your transition into, like, playing in, in a band. Like, how did that come about? I guess it was about... Well, it was through all these connections that I had made. I was, you know, I, I played, I tried my hand at different things and I could get around on different instruments, but nothing really took. Uh, played guitar first. And then when I was about 12, switched to banjo and played banjo for a while and then got interested in the dobro. And I guess it was about that time. I was about 14 and uh, hanging out at the guitar shop a lot. And there was a uh, local band, regional band that I was a big fan of called Flint Hill. And James Allen Shelton was playing lead guitar in that band. And I don't remember the circumstances, but he was leaving the band and needed a replacement. And he suggested to the band that they hire me to play mm-hmm. dobro and take his place. Yeah. And... For some odd reason, I guess they all had a lapse of sanity. They did, <laughs> and hired the fourteen-year-old kid who'd never been anywhere or done anything. And uh, you know, it was a really great band, great musicians, and good friends. And that was the first, I guess. I had done a few little things with dad and other people around, you know, church right. functions and all that. But that was the first real band I was in, and we, you know, we played weekends and we. Uh, would travel in the summer sometimes. I mean, we'd go as far as Texas and play bluegrass festivals. Mm-hmm. So it was quite an opening experience. And uh, through, I mean, you know how it is in the 
the bluegrass circles. Uh, through that, you meet more and more people, and and uh, that band had a pretty big. Basically, for one of one reason or the other, everybody left except for myself and the bass player, and so he hired, among other people, he hired Adam Steffi to come in and play mandolin, and mm-hmm. so that was kind of the I I knew Adam and knew him from the guitar shop, but that was kind of my. That was the first band I played in with him. That was kind of the beginning of our uh, years-long friendship and musical association. And it just kind of went from there. Um, the next was a, another band called The Boys in the Band that was myself. Well, they had been going. They, had a, they were a really well-known, well-respected band in the East Tennessee, Southwest Virginia area and had been going since the probably early seventies. Mm. And, uh, but at the time when I joined, it was myself and Adam Steffi and Tim Stafford, Frank wing on banjo and Tom Ratliff on Dobro. And we toured for a couple of years there again, same kind of thing. A lot of local weekend stuff, but we'd go and do silver dollar city out in Branson for a week or, right. uh, festivals in Arkansas or this and that. And, uh, so, we kind of, you know, those of us that that were younger and didn't have day jobs, and we we decided that uh, we wanted to try our hand at going more full time, and and some of the other guys couldn't, you know, right, for their right. place in life, and so that's when Adam and Tim and I formed uh, a band called Dusty Miller with uh, Adam's wife at the time, Tammy, and. Uh, Brian Fessler, banjo player that Adam had known. There was a little lapse in there. Adam had left and gone with the Lonesome River Band for a little while, and Brian was playing banjo with them during that time, and, and he lived in Nashville. And, and so uh, the five of us started that band. Were you still living in uh, East Tennessee? I was. I was, I was trying to go to uh, East Tennessee State at the time. I started there when I was, uh, I guess, the fall of 87, and I was, I'm trying to think what, if I was playing in any of those bands. There was a, there was a little bit of time period. I think that was probably Boys in the Band era, right before we started Dusty Miller, that I was playing with the Bluegrass Band at ETSU. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, when, when that was going on, uh, I was actually still, still attempting to go to school uh, in, in, 1990 when when I finally joined Union Station mm-hmm. and it just you know working more and more and more and more and had less and less time for school and just kind of yeah I didn't really quit I didn't flunk out I <laughs> I just kind of I, I say I kind of oozed away <laughs> yeah well uh talk for a minute about the transition to starting to play with Allison how did y'all get get that opportunity well, uh, there again, as you know, you know, in the in the bluegrass world, particularly the festival circuit, um, it, it, for anybody that's not familiar with the bluegrass festival scene, uh, about a, any weekend in the summer, spring, summer, early fall, there's a bluegrass festival going on somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and most bands, uh, if they have done it right are playing at a different one every day of every weekend. But the you know, these festivals have 
anywhere from three to 20 acts in a given day. <laughs> so the chances are good that you're going to see the same bands or be on the same show with, with some of the same bands quite often over the summer. And you just get to know people and, uh, you know, you have your, your favorite bands that you like to listen to that you get to play with. And we had, we had played a few shows. Dusty Miller had, had played some shows with uh, union station and we uh, were all big fans of each other, sort of had a mutual admiration society going on. And, uh, about, I guess it was May or June of, well, Tim and I, Tim Stafford and I had had the opportunity to fill in with uh, Allison on a show. Uh, I guess it was in 89, probably sometime. And, uh, you know, of course, just had a ball uh, mm -hmm. standing there listening to her sing, and it was a lot of fun. And about June of 90, she called us and, and, uh, said you know i want you to come play full time and, and offered tim and myself and adam all three at the same time and we were of course thrilled and jumped at the chance uh mm -hmm. just one the fact that we were going to get to play music full time yeah and then to be able to play at such a high level with her uh allison brown was playing banjo at the time um just you know, couldn't ask for a better opportunity and, and never look back. You know, we, I, I thought about this sometime later. None of us, you know, when, when she offered, none of us, nobody even thought about, it. we never asked, well, how much was it pay? Yeah. You know, we were just like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, been, you know, as I said earlier, 26 years ago. And uh -huh. so it's been quite a ride. Oh yeah. So, do you remember how many dates y'all played that first year that you came on board? I've got all my old date books from from every year. I could go back and look it up, but I know routinely in the first probably four or five years, uh, show days and travel days and everything, uh, days on the road away from home, routinely up into the three hundreds. <laughs> yeah. You know, just. And it was, we loved it. You know, we were all kids. I mean, I was 20 years old at the time, no family, nothing, and out living my dream. So it was all just a great big adventure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, van, late night van. We never slept. We didn't get any <laughs> sleep. I mean, yeah. you know how it is, but we'd, uh, you know, we'd literally sleep on our days off. Yeah. And if, you know, I have a day off and we'd sleep for 12, 14 hours at a time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that band, you, uh, the five people you mentioned played together for a while and then, uh, Ron Block came on board, I guess in 91 or something like that. Yeah. 91. Um, I think sometime September, October of 91, something like that. Yeah. And then, uh, so then that band was together for a few years and, um, enjoyed, uh, probably a, a, a good level of success yep. um, so talk about um, when you really it was there a point I guess in which you really was able to look around and say this uh, this seems to be going really well it seems you know uh, you know I don't know if there was actually a, a, 
an epiphany moment that that any of us went, oh gosh, wow, check this out. <laughs> yeah. We were so immersed in it, and you know, like I said, playing, traveling three hundred days a year. Um, it was just you. You, it, it seemed so gradual. I guess uh, it was kind of a blur. You know, we'd play a place, go to say, just for example, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, and play some little. 50 seat club then the next year we'd go back and we'd play a hundred seat club yeah you know and then the next time we'd go back we might play a 200 seat theater or you know it was just a gradual thing i mean it was obvious that things were growing and getting better and going in the right direction but as far as any anything where any of us thought oh wow we were really hitting it right i don't think any of that happened until you know much later like during the uh, when you say nothing at all, right? Era. So you know, a couple more years pass, and and now you have Dan Tominski in the band, and and that comes along basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so with that coming out and being a hit, um, was did you notice a difference at that point in the audience? And there was a there was a big difference. Uh, some of it for, some of it for the good, some of it not so good. Um, we were still doing we sort of had this Alice and I especially sort of had this it wasn't a rule it was just kind of a a, a way of looking at things that it seems like there was a, a time there quite a quite a few years span that there were an awful lot of like tribute records and and various things that that were going on and we got to do a lot of them and we'd always look at that as oh wow okay this isn't the union station record here's an opportunity to do something different right right. so that that's kind of the mindset why that record has drums and i played electric (laughs) bass on it and ron played electric guitar and you know there was no no thought of us saying okay well we need to do this in order to try to get a hit yeah it's just we played bluegrass all the time and here was something different a one-off opportunity for us to just have fun and do something different and so that's that's how that came about and uh they were putting this keith whitley tribute record together randy scruggs was producing it and uh they asked us to be a part of it and and that was uh that was the song that we wanted to do and and went in and cut it and really didn't think that much else about it. And just one of those things, you know, the, all the stars aligned and it just kind of went, uh, went pretty crazy there for a summer. And, uh, it got us into, it got us in front of a lot of other people, but sometimes the settings weren't always that great. We were playing a lot of country festivals. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, we we had didn't have we didn't know anything about pickups and all the stuff that if we just uh, learned from our bluegrass history from the people like the Osborne brothers and that right. kind of thing, we might have been able to navigate that a little better. But you know, we opened for a lot of big country acts. We opened for Alan Jackson on a tour, and we opened for Dwight Yoakam, and actually opened about. I don't remember exactly. It was a handful of shows for Garth Brooks, mm-hmm. you know, and it was just a wild time, and we were just trying to find our way, you know, and and try to try to do the best we could, and and 
I think it in the bluegrass world, I think it helped a lot in that we were still playing a lot of bluegrass festivals and a lot of people were coming to those bluegrass festivals just to see Allison and hear her and, and right. hear that song. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, one of the good things I was thinking about this the other day, I, I, I won't uh, think so much of us to think it was anything that we did single handedly, but I think it was during that period that we were able we had the clout and the drawing power that we were able to uh, request some things, some you know, at bluegrass festivals that normally weren't done, like you know, a separate place for the artists just to kind of chill out at a bluegrass festival, <laughs> so that you're not stepping off the backstage and uh, you know, at least a place to go get a drink of water and cool off a minute or or. Uh, you know, bringing bringing your own sound guy and and trying to get things to just I don't know just just trying to up the professionalism of some things that hadn't necessarily always been that way. But yeah, it was it was quite a quite a period, and and that was the first I think that we ever any of us came to going. Oh wow, okay, <laughs> this something's working. Yeah, you said you said some for the better and some not. Uh, so the some not like what's well the some not was like some of the situations we got into at some of these country festivals like with sound and yeah sort of some, mo- mostly sound and, yeah. and I mean that was pretty much it just being kind of in a at least presentation wise kind of being a fish out of water a little bit yeah just just not knowing you know not really having our our uh, you know we definitely didn't have a stage show there were no right. lights there was no it didn't always translate to the country crowd. I mean, it's one gotcha. thing to hear this song on the radio, but it's another thing to 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 watch, uh, you know, to come to a show that's us and Sawyer Brown or something like that. Right, you know? right. It's, so it was a, a difficult thing to try to learn how to come across well and present ourselves to that that crowd in those settings. Yeah, sound was always the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. So you've really uh, gotten into songwriting in the last few years, and uh, and had some success with that. You, uh... yeah, yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting time. You know, I've I really like um, I- anymore. I really like variety. You know, in in, in what <laughs> yeah. I do, uh, contrasted to what I said earlier about you know playing in the same band. 300 days a year for however many years uh it's just it keeps things fresh you know and and it it all came about for for years i was one of those guys well all my life i was one of those guys that thought well you know songwriters if they're if you're meant to be a songwriter it, you'll have this aha moment and this song will come to you and you won't be able to hardly write it down fast enough yeah and so i just never tried uh-huh. I, that, I firmly believed that for years. So, back probably about 2009, I guess, 2010, somewhere in there. Whenever it was that uh, Acus was cutting paper airplane, we had a uh, we thought we had all the material we wanted, and as we got into the recording process. You know, things will shake out to where, well, I used to like this, but I don't know that it works now, and we need something else. So we had a couple of spots that we really didn't have songs to fit, 
and they were sort of a specific spot where you you couldn't take just anything. You needed a sort of specific tempo or or mm-hmm. whatever. So we were tossing around the idea of who writers that we knew and liked that we could approach about writing something specifically for us for this record. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I suggested Chris Stapleton, and because uh, I knew Chris one was a great writer, two. Uh, has a bluegrass background and could sort of, I could see him being very good at crafting something to fit what worked for us. Right. So everybody was into it. And Allison suggested that I write with him Mm -hmm. to which I said, well, I'm not a songwriter because (laughs) I'd never done it. Yeah. And she said, well, you know what kind of song we need. Right. Which, yeah. Okay. But I thought, well, Chris is like a real legitimate songwriter with lots of number ones. <laughs> he may not really feel like bringing in somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. But I called him anyway and told him what was going on. And, of course, anybody that knows him knows he's a really humble, nice, welcoming guy. And he said, yeah, yeah, come on over. love to. And uh, so we wrote a song. And uh, my first attempt at, at real attempt at writing and co-writing and any of that and ended up being a song called uh, Miles to Go, which made it on the record. Mm-hmm. Allison sang it, which that was just, uh, it's hard to describe the, th- the thrill of that, particularly at that point in my life. The only thing I could liken it to is, is anybody that's ever learned to play an instrument. You know, in the very early days when you actually learn to make a chord, yeah. and it, you can actually, there's no muted strings and you actually <laughs> it's like oh wow it's clear yeah. i did it yeah yeah or, or or be able to play a song on the banjo or any any instrument that other people go oh yeah that's uh you know coming around the mountain or whatever you know something that you <laughs> oh, you really yeah. feel like you've accomplished something uh-huh. and that was one of the immediate things that really got me hooked into trying this songwriting route is i hadn't felt that in years Mm-hmm. You know, for better or worse, uh, it was like being a kid again and, and having something totally new, even within the realm of music, something totally new open to you. So from there, just just kept trying to, to write and, and co-write as much as possible and learn um, from all that kind of figured out that it's like anything else. You know, you got to work at it. There are those songs that come to you as a blur and you just fast as you can write but that's few and far between i think about any professional songwriter would tell you that but yeah i've just been writing a lot ever since then uh wrote continued to write a lot with chris you know up until his recent success he's gotten real busy and (laughs) and on the road a lot but uh uh the the i think you were referring to there earlier uh chris and ronnie bowman and myself write and have written a lot together off and on either the three of us or Chris and Ronnie have a very successful history of writing together. Uh, Chris and I have written together, Ronnie and I have written together, but for this particular night, me and Chris had a couple of days set up. He said, he said, come on over tonight. He said, I'll find us a third to write with. So I walk Mm -hmm. in and Ronnie's there. So I thought, Oh, great. Well, this will be fun. (laughs) So, Ronnie started throwing out this. He was just telling the story. He wasn't throwing out ideas. It was just Ronnie. Anybody that knows him, he was just talking. 
and uh, he and his wife had had a little argument or something. He's shaking his head and going, man, <laughs> you know, he goes through the whole thing and then says, but, you know, I got nobody to blame but me. And yeah. so Chris and I, our heads whip around and look at each other <laughs> like, there's our song. <laughs> so we wrote it and uh, didn't think much else about it. That was back in, I think that was 2013. Well, lo and behold, Chris, who's the professional songwriter, uh, decides he wants to be a solo artist and gets a record deal with uh, Universal and puts out what's become one of the biggest selling country records of the last couple of years. And he he put that song on there and it mm -hmm. they released it as a single and it went to number 10, which there again, you know, I've never had outside of, you know, something charting on bluegrass stuff, that the only song I've ever had on any chart. So there again, it was quite a thrill. And uh, we were nominated and, and won the song of the year at the Academy of Country Music Awards back in October. So there again, it's just been a, another, you know, that's been quite a, quite a ride, quite a whirlwind for me being, a, as I said, another really new aspect to my career. Yeah. But it's, it's really, you know, it's really been fun and fulfilling to, uh, cause I always, I always grew up. I like, I loved writing and composition far back as I can remember in school. You know, I was never a great student, really bad at math, really bad at <laughs> science, but I always really loved anything to do with writing. So now and to be able to sort of continue that and, and combine it with my love of music has been a, a, a great thing. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Bell's Farms for, for a little bit. Uh, well, yeah. Just tell us what all you're, what all you're doing. And Well, Bell's Farms is, is something that's, it's been a long time coming and there's still a, a lot. It's, it's still a work in progress, but, uh, long story short, I guess, well, I'll try to make it short. Back in, uh, I guess back in the early nineties, 91, 92, I was living in middle Tennessee, living down in Franklin and our old, our family's old home place back up in Greene County, Tennessee. Uh, my grandmother was in a nursing home and so nobody was living there and it was just kind of falling down and I'd had about all of Nashville that I could take on a daily basis. Um, I, I'm the kind of guy that I like, I love to hunt and fish and be outside and just, you know, get away from the music business at times and clear your head and all that. And right. so I thought, and my, you know, my rent kept going up and up and up and I thought, well, you know, I, most of the time I was only, you know, uh, I wasn't doing a lot in Nashville. It was all on the road, yeah. either flying or driving or whatever. So I thought, well, I can do that from anywhere. So I moved back to the farm, which is a place that I dearly, dearly loved and, and more or less grew up on. I was born and raised in Kingsport, Tennessee, but my grandparents lived on this farm, and uh, I spent every summer with them, every second that I could. They'd pick me up from school the day that it let out for the summer, and I'd stay till the day it took back up in the fall. Mm-hmm. And we had cattle and horses, and we rode all the time, you know, uh, 
plowed and bush hogged and put up hay and all that and just truly an idyllic childhood. So I ended up moving back there and uh, have lived there ever since. Now married, have a son. And uh, a few years ago, I started thinking, you know, I'd really like for him to experience some of what I experienced growing up. Sure. And I and my I've been at it long enough and my my at the place in my career where I've got more time, I can pick and choose a little more what I can do and so I thought, you know, we need to get a few animals. Because mm-hmm. I I didn't want him to think, well, you know, let's just go to the grocery store and buy this and buy that. Teach him some responsibility, teach him how to work hard. So we I think the first thing we got, we got a few chickens and Anyway, it's over the last few years, it's grown into a, a little more of a a thing. We raise, uh, we don't really sell any eggs. The eggs are mostly for us, but we got into raising broilers, which are meat chickens. Right. And uh, we bought a few more and a few more and a few more. And so now we're raising, each summer we get a batch and raise them from uh, two-day-old chicks until they're ready for the processor, which is roughly 12 weeks we we raise um heritage breed chickens as opposed to the white uh tyson style chickens that you see on the trucks going down the road they're they're a little uh uh healthier i think and and not as many potential health problems and things but uh, yeah, we've been doing that the last few years and, and, and sell those. We take them to a, a processor over in North Carolina, and they're USDA inspected and mm-hmm. packaged up real nice. And, and uh, we've developed quite a few uh, really great relationships with people as customers and been raising pork the last couple of years. Uh, and all this is on pasture. We've got uh, I built uh, chicken tractors which for those that don't know are basically movable cages that don't have a floor so that the chickens are right on the ground, on the grass. They're out in the pasture able to eat grass and clover and dig for worms and all that. And we uh, supplement their feed with, I've got a friend in uh, Kingsport that runs a, he's got a a great brewery up there called Sleepy Owl Brewery. And uh, usually about once a week when he brews, we'll get his, uh, spent barley from the brewing process and it's all organic barley and we take it and feed the chickens and they love it and uh, got some uh, we've got a couple of steers we're raising for beef right now and just kind of kind of feeling our way and, and figuring out exactly you know what what we do best and what direction we want to go but uh, yeah we're we're ramping up a little bit more every year it's it's about to get to the point where you know we we don't have any. Uh, it's just us. We don't have any right. hired help. So yeah. we're we're about to the point where if we get any bigger, we're going to have to maybe hire some people. But uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll see. But it's been fun. You know, it's been great for me to get back into it, and it's been really great great to see my son take to it. You know, he's a he's an animal lover of the nth degree. You know, uh-huh. at, even at nine, he's already talking like he think he thinks he wants to be a vet. Oh, yeah. But if you know he's he's the one that if any any animal needs uh, caught, we send him. He's the guy. He's he's <laughs> got the he's got the knack. So it's uh, it's it's a really cool thing to see you know to see animals there again and be working at it and and uh, especially you know we 
we got in it initially to have animals, as I said, for him to know about all that, the aspects of farming and, and for us, you know, right. to, to grow our own food as much as we could. And then we figured, well, you know, if we grow, if we raise this much for us and then raise this much more to kind of help cover our costs and we can sell it and, uh, you know, other people have access to good stuff. So, uh, you know, that was, that was kind of the original plan and, and it's just growing a little bit more every year. Are you, uh, do you, do you have a big garden or anything like that? In we, we do. We don't have, you know, we used to always growing up had the gigantic traditional, uh, garden, you know, put out way too much. But, uh, a few years ago, I guess it's been four or five years ago now we did some, uh, some remodeling, uh, landscape wise there at the house the house is we live up on a big hill and always just you know used to be where you'd walk out the front door and it just slope right straight off and i kind of wanted a little bit of a yard so mm -hmm. i had this rock wall built and filled in behind it where we had a flat front yard so when i did that i put in a couple of uh, uh the guy that do, does our septic tanks i had him make up a couple of uh water storage tanks a uh, thousand gallons a piece and uh, when we were filling that in behind the wall I had those sunk in the ground and attached to my downspouts and then from there on down in front of the house in the flat we built a bunch of raised beds and ran the irrigation pipes down there so we've got free gravity flow <laughs> irrigation to all of our raised beds and uh, mm -hmm. rather than you know in the past traditional garden you know you either got to be out there with your tiller or out there right. hoeing and mm -hmm. I, i'm i'm like the guy in the in the uh dan Tominsky allison kraus and union station song i'm a lazy farmer <laughs> so anyway i can keep from uh expending energy that i don't need to I, i'm all for it so having gone to those raised beds it's really been great you know we've we've got they're about 18 inches tall and uh, we fill them with a mix of uh, topsoil and compost. And, uh, you know, it's much easier to weed. You can put down plastic or mulch if you need to. And we can water those uh, as needed with that drip irrigation system. And it's really been the way to go for us. You know, our, our the footprint of it is not very big compared to gardens that we used to have. But, you know, the output is really good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we raise... What all are you? Yeah, are you raising? Well, we've you know we've got the standards, uh, a lot of tomatoes, okra, asparagus. Um, we've been doing a lot, especially in the cooler seasons. Been doing a lot of uh, lettuce mixes and spinach and kale, that kind of thing. And we're, we're I think that's the next direction we're going with the farm uh, side of it. Is these chicken tractors that I built? They're they're kind of like a uh, basically an a-frame they look like a little greenhouse more or less they're 16 by 10 and as i said we only use them 12 weeks out of the year when we've got the chickens so i think we're going to try using those this winter's greenhouses and try to mm. try to uh grow some salad mixes and things and and hopefully uh if we get that dialed in that'll be another another offering from <laughs> from bales farms yeah well, all that stuff uh it's very uh you know time consuming and uh labor intensive I, I don't know how you do it well 
you know, honestly, I don't have any spare time. I mean, when I'm home, I'm going full on uh, all the time. Always got something, uh, especially with the chickens. You know, we pretty much yeah. just realize that they're, you know, from once we've got the meat chickens, nothing else. I mean, we don't go anywhere. We don't do anything. <laughs> I mean, obviously I do. I'm still yeah. on the road. Right. But I've tried to, as I said, you know, not only am I lazy, but I've also, knowing that, I've tried to get everything to where it's as easy to do for my wife and son when I'm gone as I can. And sure. It's pretty, you know, it's really easy. The chicken tractors, we just uh, back the four-wheeler up to them, hook up, and we pull them, you know, one length every day so the chickens have fresh grass. Yeah. And, um, yeah, everything is, is as far as the, the routine every day, feeding and water and all that, it's it's not bad, but uh, yeah, there's always something. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm not I'm not bored by any means. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned you know some of the uh, the artists you listened to, you know way back when. What about these days? Like, uh, let's first just concentrate like on bluegrass. Do you listen to much bluegrass these days? Yes and no. I, I'm on the road a lot as far as driving back and forth to Nashville for various things or, or you know, if the Earls are playing somewhere that closer to me, it makes more sense for me to drive than to come and meet up in Nashville. So, I, you know, I've got XM uh, or right. Sirius or whatever it is now mm-hmm. in the truck and, uh, you know, listen to the Bluegrass Channel quite a bit. Um, you know, as far as, as favorites these days – um, love Blue Highway. You know, all those guys are friends of mine, uh, and and I'm a fan of of all of them individually. And they've just got a thing, you know that. Yeah. And I think that's part of why they've been around so long and successful. What you know, besides the uh, the songwriting, they've just got a sound. You know, they've mm-hmm. got something that really works. And and then you add in all those great songwriters writing great. I mean, that's that to me that that that's something that bluegrass has really been lacking is a lot of really strong original material that is not necessarily modern just to be modern, but it's modern, but it still works in the bluegrass context. Right. Yeah. And they, they, they're, about the kings of that to me you know they're just uh and every record they just get better and better you know sean lane especially i'm a i'm a huge sean lane fan and it seems like er, the last couple of records for sure i mean i remember putting them in and and you know the first song come on that he sang lead on and just thinking man he just gets better (laughs) all the time yeah i remember you know i wouldn't even then uh hadn't even been following bluegrass that long when I saw in Bluegrass Unlimited where they had started that band. And mm-hmm. I just read the names, and I, I was familiar with Tim from you know playing with Allison, and knew Sean from playing with Doyle, and and I knew that he'd played with Ricky mm-hmm. for a, a short period of time. But I was really excited about it because I just knew with that mix of uh, people that it's going to be good. And then I heard it, and it, yeah. it definitely was. Yeah, they're yeah. they're definitely one of my favorites too. Yeah, I, I really like what they're doing. Um, you know, every, everybody that's uh, – I, I really like it if people are able to bring anything fresh and new to bluegrass, even – not even necessarily doing anything progressive. Right. But just 
that that's one thing where I think we've we've kind of dropped the ball in in a lot of years is there's an awful lot of you know the old joke is everybody uh, outside of bluegrass says oh bluegrass it all sounds the same to me <laughs> well a lot of it sounds the same to me you know even if <laughs> yeah. I know who it is yeah like it's it's just kind of there's a, there's a and that's a hard thing there's a, I mean there's a it, it's a two edged sword. Uh, in a good way, there's a formula about bluegrass. You right, know, bluegrass right. follows certain parameters, and that's what we like about it. You know, probably <laughs> what got us hooked. You know, everybody likes to hear, you know, hard driving banjo played in B, uh, and all that goes along with that. But also, in a bad way, there's a formula about bluegrass <laughs> right, in right. a lot of ways. So, you know, and it, and it's so hard to change it. You know, it, 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 there's not a lot of room for change. Right. And it it's, still it's, it's be true to, to what it is. It's hard to find the area. Okay. You know, how much do you change it before it's not okay? Right. <laughs> or, yeah. Exactly. And that's yeah. the, that's the million dollar question. Yeah. And, and I don't necessarily know the answer. I just know when it's maybe not pushing far enough or hard enough yeah. in some way or, or, right. or lacking some new angle you know it's like the thing with blue highway they're not i wouldn't call them progressive by any means i mean they're modern you know and and yeah. i'm not i'm not into labels necessarily anyway at the same time i don't like stuff that i don't think's bluegrass being called bluegrass but at the <laughs> same time i would i don't consider myself you know oh well if it's not bill monroe or if it's not exactly like this then it's garbage right but you know just i think the key is being able to bring anything you know bring your personality as a as a band or as a lead singer or as a songwriter or whatever with and and take it and run with it within the context of what everybody thinks of as yeah that's bluegrass it's great i mean there's a certain thing about it that got us all hooked and that we all love Mm -hmm. um is there anybody like Blue Highway? You know, uh, we mentioned they they've been around for several years now. Yeah, and I, is, I realize I shouldn't have said them as somebody I listen to now because no, they have been around for a long time. But. No, no, but that's uh, you know that's a legitimate answer to the question I asked. But the the new question now <laughs> is uh, okay. So for a newer band, is there any that kind of stand out to you as 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 having something original or something? You know that everybody needs to to check out. Well, you know, I actually just wrote uh, a little blurb for them. I don't know if it made it in the liner notes or what, but uh, a band that you know they're not um, they're 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 definitely not um, uh, going way outside the box. But what they're doing is I, I like for, for the th- things that I like in, in bluegrass and, and sort of a little fresh perspective, I really like, there's a band called volume five Yeah, that I, I just really like there again. It's one of those things a little bit like blue highway in that I can't really put my finger on what it is. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, they're not, uh, I don't think they write an awful lot of their stuff and, they they're certainly capable instrumentally of you know Colby Laney and all those guys are are amazing technical players, mm-hmm. but they don't do that in the context of the band. So it's not like oh well, gosh, check out these 
unbelievably intricate solos. It's just uh, Glenn Harrell, the fiddle player and lead singer, uh, has a really pleasant, nice voice and really knows how to sing a song. Right. right. Really, really uh, makes you is really believable. Um, I think that's one of the most important things, you know. Like oh, if, yeah. if you, you know, if you have even if you have a good band, but don't have a really you know good lead singer, to me, then I don't know that I'm ever going to just love the band so much. Yeah. And then if you have a pleasant lead singer, you know. Well, and I'm I'm biased. I'm I mean, even as a bass player, my slant is I love vocals. Like yeah. I I, not that not that if you do. If you play an instrumental or not, if the, if you make an instrumental record or any of that kind of stuff, not that that's wrong. Just for what I like, mm-hmm. I don't care if I ever played another instrumental in my life. I <laughs> yeah. love vocals. I love harmony singing. I love to sing in a trio or whatever with other good singers, and, and that's what draws me in. Mm-hmm. And it has to be somebody that is believable. Right. You know, there again, from the technical standpoint, you might be somebody that can – sing 15 octaves and and do every (laughs) vocal run that's ever been and have you know better three steps than ralph stanley but (laughs) if it's if it's just for show if you're not you know i i I consider it the mark of a good singer if somewhere during the song i sort of lose myself in the story yeah and come back and go oh okay he's singing he's not he's not telling me the story he's not talking right He's actually he's singing a song, so that's that's one that comes to mind right off the bat. So, do you have any advice for uh, young bands that might be up and coming? I'd say the some some of the advice that I could give is, um, so, and this is some, definitely one of those "do as I say, not as I do." Um, Learn as much as you can. You know, there used to be, I don't think it's that much, it's not much of a thing anymore. When I was younger and learning to play, bluegrass musicians almost wore it as a badge of honor that they were all self-taught and played by ear. <laughs> yeah. That, oh, well, you know, I can't read music. It's almost, as, it, was a, it was almost like a good thing. <laughs> And yeah. and I I don't read music can't read a note of it and and I regret that mm-hmm. greatly and I, and I don't think if you could read music or if you studied music and and knew you know you might not use it very often but right. at least having that knowledge you know if you if you want to make a career out of playing and that I mean that's the angle I'm speaking of from right. Right. I think you owe it to yourself to to learn everything you can and learn as much as you can. Um, so that you'll have that to draw on if and when you need it. That being said, also, don't overlook, uh, going back into what we were saying about singers and things, don't overlook the feeling side of it. And and don't, <laughs> we used to have a, well, we still use it, but when Adam and I were f- first coming along and playing a lot, one of our sayings was, and this was pertaining to music and overplaying and stuff like that, you know, just because you can don't mean you should. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, there, there, there are times to let loose and, and you know, maybe be flashy, uh, 
vocally or instrumentally, but you know, you, you got to be true to the song and you got to play the music and you got to, you got to connect with the listener. Um, most, most of whom, you know, the ones that really, well, I was going to say the ones that really matter. I don't mean it like that, but I mean, by and large, the people that are going to be supporting you by buying tickets and buying albums and things like that, the vast majority of them are not musicians. All right. So they don't care how fast you can get up down the fretboard. <laughs> they they care if it's something that, that sounds good to them, is pleasing to the ear, is in tune, uh, particularly if it's vocal, uh, tells a story that they can relate to or, or that they can believe. And, uh, you know, it's just the, the more I do this and the, the longer I'm in it and the more situations I'm in, the more I like simple stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I like I like good three part harmony. I like I like a song that that uh, maybe has a few twists and turns, but just you know, if 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 the if the story is there and it's and it's well written, um, you know, that's that's that goes a long way, uh, even if it's two you know two chords. So, I would say that, and I would also say. Learn everything you can about the business side of it, because there again, I'm woefully deficient. Even after all these years, um, I, I finally came to the realization a few years ago. You know, I, I thought, you know, I'm in the music business, <laughs> and I've studied music my whole life, but I've ne- I don't know anything about business. Yeah, and particularly in in this part of the industry, in bluegrass and acoustic music. Uh, pennies matter. Yeah. You know, so you need to be on top of your game about, it, you know, if if you are the kind of person that's going to get this far, you know, you need to be on your game about contracts and and writers and agreements and booking stuff and songwriting stuff. All that is, you know, very involved. And I'm still feeling my way just because I never – you know, I never took any business classes in school. Uh, nobody ever ta- taught me or made me balance a checkbook or any of that stuff. Any any simple stuff. I mean, I think I've 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 made out okay because I'm naturally tight. But <laughs> you know, it, it's a business. Yeah. You you shouldn't. That's a hard thing to. It's a hard thing to get a balance. When it is a, a an artistic, emotional thing, yeah. the music side of it is, right. but for it to be a business as well, to where you have to say, okay, well, I I can afford to go for this, or my time is worth this, and I'm not going to go for less than this or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know everybody's got to find their own way as far as balancing those two things. But it's definitely if you don't have the, the, the musical knowledge in your arsenal and you don't have the business knowledge in your arsenal, then it's, as they say in East Tennessee at home, it's a mute point. <laughs> you know, it, it's, if you have that stuff to draw on but don't ever need it, then great. But if you need it and don't, can't draw on it, right. then you're in a bad spot. So I think that's particularly good advice, just given some of the, the things. Uh, I mean, I... I'm very uh, pro-education, let's say. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a, it's a good thing. The more you, the more you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, 
and learn about sound. Yeah, you, may, yeah. you may never run sound, but right. that's another thing that I found is, for the most part, in my experience, musicians and sound engineers speak two completely different languages. <laughs> and if you know enough to be able to carry on a conversation with a sound man and say, okay, well, uh, it's feeding back at 200 hertz or, right. or whatever, whatever the frequency is. Learn frequencies. Don't say, oh, well, it's a B-flat note. Unless they're a musician, they don't know what a B-flat is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and whatever that takes. you know. Luckily, th- in this day and age, there are colleges like East Tennessee State and, and others that now offer courses in all the things I've talked about. Um, there's other ways, you know, if particularly if you're if you're a young up and coming musician and have the, the, the time and the ability, go volunteer or you know, see if you can get a job or even uh, just tag along with a sound company, you know, for the weekend or yeah. something like that. Just get some hands on experience and, and get in the trenches and learn what's going on and, and, and how to navigate your way through all this stuff. You know, don't just show up and go, uh, is that, I think that's a microphone. Is that what that is? <laughs> so, you know, knowledge, knowledge is good. Even, even in bluegrass. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I thought of what I was trying to think of a little earlier. So let's talk about the audience for a minute and how that relates to different festivals. So, and and also how it relates to like if you're up and coming and as a band like what what you might need to go for or maybe not. So um, you know, one thing I notice is that uh, obviously the thing you're doing with the the Earls right now it's a very traditional bluegrass thing. I mean you can't really get much more traditional bluegrass than that. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously I've noticed uh, you know a lot of the festivals we've played a lot of the same festivals this year. Yep. You know I have with Sierra and a lot of like bigger music festivals and stuff like that that aren't necessarily like hardcore bluegrass festivals. Mm-hmm. And I would say um, do you think the reason that like you know y'all get booked to those kinds of festivals uh have more to do with the actual music like the idea of it that it's this cool thing or like like Jerry's link to that world or uh, whoever else in the band uh, does it ha- does the the music that you play have a lot to do with the gigs that you're getting I guess I don't think it does. I think the vast majority of, of things that have happened initially have been because of the association with Jerry. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we've played a lot of shows where they were expecting the Jerry Douglas band, you know, his electric <laughs> yeah. band with drums and, and yeah. all that. After the show, it's, it's, it's everything's fine, you know. Sure. I have I have found that people once they hear what we're doing and I, and I'm not necessarily putting it all on us we're I mean we're just trying to recreate Flat and Scruggs right. but I will say that it really has been surprising in a good way how it's really connected with people mm-hmm. uh, all across the board from man I, I I know the name Flat and Scruggs but I don't know anything about the music this stuff is some of the coolest stuff I've ever heard all the way to you know, older people come up at the record table and saying, you know, I saw Flat and Scruggs when I was eight years old. I never thought I'd ever hear that kind of stuff again. Yeah. You know, you can't 
I can't thank you enough for all the memories that you brought back. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, to, to answer your question, I think initially it's all been because of Jerry's name yeah. and maybe the curiosity factor. Right. right. But um, so, so for me to round this into a better question now, I guess. Um, so for a band that's coming up and say they're kind of borderline, for instance, like say you uh, – like you have some players in the band that are capable of doing things outside the bluegrass box, but you still love bluegrass and you're 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 doing that. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to to get at is like there's the the bluegrass festival circuit, where I think of certain festivals, and they're certain size and that sort of thing. And then mm-hmm. I think of like these larger music festivals that I've been to in the last several years, that to where there's not a lot of like traditional bluegrass bands out. Right. there's a lot of jam bands and a lot of things like that so to gain a good enough size audience what what do you have to do to to get to that point if that makes any sense no well it does um you know i've got a lot of of thoughts about bluegrass and the state of the business and the state of things and and a lot of them might not be popular thoughts and and might you know upset some people but i i just don't you know and we've been out and i'm i'm coming at this from a i'm a i'm i'm bluegrass (laughs) i mean i grew up yeah you know i've always been the bluegrass guy right right. you know in any situation i've been anytime there's a question about you know well who cut this song or who played on this I'm not coming at it from the standpoint of, well, you know, I've played bluegrass in my life and now I'm on to other things or whatever. Right. I mean, that's that's what I do and what I love. Mm-hmm. So I I say this, I'm I'm also a realist and and somebody that that likes to think that they're pretty good at, at observing things. I don't see from what I from what I can tell, I don't see near as much growth. Long-term growth and sustainability in quote-unquote traditional bluegrass festivals, right? As opposed to, you know, the other kind of festivals you're talking about, more generalized things that may right something that may not necessarily be near as big, but for for the sake of classification, like a Telluride, yeah, you know, that kind of thing, and on down, right? Where where the where the audience and the roster is more diverse right exactly goes back to what i said about it's a business as long as you stay true to your musical self and do what you want to do all things being equal if you can get into these bigger or or more diverse or whatever uh, jam band slash Americana slash whatever you want to say type festivals. If that's where the seemingly uh, better growth is and long term potential, why wouldn't you? I mean that. I mean it's. I hate it. I mean I wish bluegrass was. Uh, you know I wish Larry Sparks was. Uh, playing to 45,000 people every night. Yeah, absolutely. It's just not the case. It's just fact. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that you, I I don't know that you could get, I don't know that you can get bluegrass to that level 
and keep it bluegrass. <laughs> I mean, in order to right. get it that popular and that uh, palatable to the masses, you're going to change it so much it's no longer going to be what it is. I just don't think it's possible. As right. much as we all want to think it is and, oh, more people just need to know about it and then they'd love it. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, so there again, back to the thing about it's business. You know, you, you, you need to do... I mean, we've we've fought that thing for years with with uh, Acus. You know, people right. always say, "Well, Allison sold out. She doesn't play bluegrass festivals." Yada yada yada. Well, nobody sold out. <laughs> it's just you're 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 in it for to make a living, right. and you're in it as a business, and so you want to uh, go in the best direction and take the best offers and business opportunities that you can. All of that outward stuff has changed. I don't know that our music has really changed that much over the years. I don't really think so. Yeah, and I think for me, that's the cool thing about it is that if you listen to um, every record that you've made, pretty much, I, I can pretty much you know listen to it and, and still think that's a bluegrass band. You know? Yeah. I mean, we definitely do stuff outside of the realm of bluegrass on yeah. each record. Right, right. But I think by and large, like if you come to a show. Like, I remember we played uh, Rocky Grass a couple of years ago, and we came off, and, and somebody, one of my friends was there, and, and they said, is that your bluegrass set for Rocky Grass? <laughs> and we were like, no, it's a set it's we a, do every night. The set, yeah. But, you know, and they were surprised that we were doing that much bluegrassy stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, don't think, I don't think your inward stuff has to change to, to you know, to be able to to change your outward stuff to be more successful and and just go you know go that route. I mean, Del McCurry, prime example. I mean, he's. St- I mean, who who would dispute the fact that Del McCurry is as bluegrass as they come? <laughs> but yeah. over the over the last few years, after after years and years and years and years and years of beating himself to death, riding up down the road, driving his own forty one oh four. He's now finally starting to see it pay off, and he's able to pick and choose. He's able to get more money. He's able to play less shows, better shows, all that. Yeah. Whether whether you would admit it or not, that's what everybody's shooting for. Yeah. They maybe can't put their finger on it or verbalize it, but given the, given the chance to play, uh, you know, uh, an afternoon set at a bluegrass festival in south georgia on a you know an outdoor stage where it's 120 degrees versus being able to actually sell hard tickets to your own show in a performing arts center in an air-conditioned room <laughs> uh i don't i don't know that many people would given the given the the choice would would pick the the bluegrass festival right you know i mean there's a lot of nostalgia and stuff that goes along with that but you know when you're standing out there <laughs> And you, there's not a dry thread on you, yeah. And you're getting eat up by mosquitoes and mayflies <laughs> and everything else. It probably wouldn't be a very hard decision. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, I, I again I say I, I hate that that's the case, but I think that's the thing is you know bands need to. And I don't know. I've ne- I've never been, and there again I may be in the minority, and this may upset some people, but I, I've never looked at bluegrass 
as something I need to be a disciple or a missionary for. Right. I I need to do that for me (laughs) and whatever project I'm involved in. Yeah, yeah. And and everybody does. Uh-huh. And and there's a there's a, a commonality and a and a family type feeling uh, in bluegrass that everybody loves, and that's another part of what drew us all into it. Is you know some most of my best friends are bluegrass musicians in other bands that I love to see at festivals and get to hang out with, and and that's a great thing. That there's not that you know. When I was a kid, go to, going to Slagle's Pasture Bluegrass Festival in Elizabethton, it would take me all day. I was incredibly bashful. It would take me all day to work up enough courage to go to the record table and ask somebody for an autograph. Mm-hmm. But thinking back, that's one of the great things about bluegrass. It's one of the things that went into developing who I am as a player is being able to go and talk to those people face-to-face and say, well, how do you do this? What do you use for this? What's your approach here? What what kind of instruments you got? You know, all that stuff. Right. And I would never want that to go away. Mm-hmm. But it's just a you know, it's a hard thing to find the right balance between you know professionalism and and being as successful as possible and still having that sort of mom and pop kind of you know back porch thing i don't right. i'm sure it can be done i don't know where the where the line is but uh there again if you're in it to make a living make the best living you can yeah absolutely you mentioned that you you obviously don't have a lot of a lot of downtime necessarily but when you do what's your uh what's your leisurely activities do you Read, watch movies, TV. What's your I, What's your thing? I I don't. I I used to be a voracious reader. Um, I I don't have the time or take the time at home. Uh, I usually I, anymore. I do all my reading on planes. Yeah. Um, quite often we'll read a book. You know, if if I'm flying out on Thursday, I'll read half of it on the way, and then coming home on Sunday or Monday, I'll finish it. Uh, so I like to do that. Anything outdoors. I mean, I truly love being out on the tractor and working and and doing stuff on the farm. And and I really love hunting and fishing. Um, About anything. I really particularly love duck hunting. Uh, Come wintertime, you know, about mid-November, chances are that's what I'm doing. You know, November, December, (laughs) January. Um gladly take work if it comes in but i don't go looking for it during that time <laughs> uh, yeah and, and just uh, you know year year round i love to love to uh hit the river for smallmouth in the summer and love to turkey hunt in the spring and travel uh occasionally i usually go to arkansas got a bunch of friends out there and go out there and duck hunt a lot in the winter in louisiana and, um that you know that's the biggest things and and spending just being being home I, I love after traveling for so much of my life you know i really love where i live i love our farm i love my family and it's you know it's great i love being there no matter what we're doing yeah. so right beside your head there's my my ut throw and you're you're quite the ut fan as well is that right i am i'm i'm yeah. thinking it's gonna 
it's getting easier to be a UT fan <laughs> these days than it has been yeah, the last, last few years. years yeah. So what do you think about the uh, prospects of, of this coming year? Well, for the football team, you know, it's it's one of those things that if you look if you look on paper and look at all the recruiting, uh, the rankings uh, sites, it's another uh, out of the park recruiting class, and 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 uh, you know I get the updates on my phone and all that, and they've added, I don't know how many, you know, on paper in theory great recruits over the last week. Um, now whether that translates as, you know, as we've all seen, mm-hmm. uh, transitioning from a high school football star to somebody that can produce for a division one university mm-hmm. re- remains to be seen how, how they all navigate that. But, you know, I think, I think it's definitely headed in the right direction. Not that we could go very far in the other direction <laughs> over the last few years, but, uh, I'm I'm still cautiously optimistic. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm hoping that uh, I'm still trying to figure out. I haven't I haven't uh, landed on a plan yet. I'm, I'm I haven't given up on going to see the Virginia Tech game yet. Oh yeah. yeah. That should be quite the spectacle. Oh, I'm sure. How many people are they expecting to to fit in there? I forget exactly what Bristol holds. It's a hundred and golly, I'm, is it? I want to say at least 150. 150 at least, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're thinking this is going to be the, the biggest uh, audience for a college football game in history yeah. to this and point. So. There's no telling how many people will be there on the grounds. I would, oh, think, yeah. I would think that there'll be tens of thousands show up just to tailgate, to just there, to be yeah. there, uh-huh. uh, which is not a bad idea, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, go tailgate and then go home and watch it on TV. Yeah, yeah. So did you ever play sports at all? I I piddled at it. I was I was one. I was never really good. Mom Mom and Dad were probably not pushy to a fault. You know, they never said, "Well, you got to play this. You got to do this. You know, you got to whatever." Mm-hmm. So I mean, I so I didn't know any better. <laughs> I didn't know to go try. So I mean, I fooled around with soccer and t ball and church league basketball and all that but never really to any degree in hindsight i wish they had pushed me to at least try stuff like i've i've done that with my son granted he's still young but you know i've told him you have to you have to try every sport (laughs) once yeah just to see if you like it otherwise you'll never know if you if you play one season and you say i don't want to do that again fine yeah. Like he's figured out that he likes basketball. Yeah. So he, he's played a lot of basketball. But, and I'm trying to help him, you know, as much as I can. And, and you know, mom and dad, they were they were great parents and very supportive of everything I ever did. But they just didn't, that was not their mindset to say, okay, well, you got to try this and try this and try this. It was left up to me. And I didn't know, you know, I was like, well, I don't know. Yeah. So I never did much, uh, and of course, by the you know by the time I was twelve years old, I was doing nothing but playing music. Yeah, you were into that. So that any chance of sports after that kind of went out the window. Yeah, similar story here. Yeah, but I I, I wish I had done more, just because I think that's another uh, you know a good thing to you know being on a team and 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 all that goes along with that. 
Uh, not that I imagine I would have ever done anything with it, but just, you know, it never hurts the more uh, interaction you can have at various <laughs> ages with people and learning yeah. how to how to uh, deal with people and, and adversity. And Well, having a bluegrass band is kind of like having a team. So well, it is. Yeah. And, and it's definitely all about uh, uh, problem solving and uh, dealing with adversity and <laughs> overcoming. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, I appreciate your time. I appreciate oh, yeah. you agreeing to do this. And uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hope to have you back someday, maybe in the future. Well, if I can, uh, I don't know if I've got anything left to talk about, <laughs> but uh, hopefully so. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe we'll do a, a guest host. Uh, I'll, I'll ask the questions next time. Hey, that sounds good. We've done that before, and that's all, all to the good. So, all right, all right. Well, thanks, man. Thank you. There you have it. There's the interview with Barry Bells. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll come back next time for the interview with Greg Cahill from the band Special Consensus. And uh, I ask you to follow me on Facebook. It's uh, facebook.com slash justinmosesmusic. Follow me on Twitter at justinmoses2. Hey, I have an Instagram page, finally, justinmosesmusic. You can find me on there. An account, I should say. And uh, any other social media, just look me up, justinmosesmusic.com. Go to justinmoses.com, and I appreciate you very much. And uh, till next time, thanks a bunch for listening. Mm-hmm.